Seems like there's another announcement I'm missing. Tomorrow we begin the project at the campgrounds. Pray that the sun continues to shine, but not at 88 degrees, whatever they said. Pray for a, a cool west wind and not a warm east wind to blow in the Warshugal River Valley. Thank you for those prayers, because it's a big job. Last week we began a message that's not good, and I could have titled it Part 2 today, but I decided to title it Lowercase M to Uppercase M, and I'll explain that someplace during the message. We began last week, we're talking about the fact that perspective makes a difference. Um, we looked at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, and I want to say it again, perspective makes a difference. Shortly after the communist revolution in Cuba, there were strong persuasive attempts at turning the people away from God. In grade schools, teachers would ask their students whether God would live up to his promises or not. And of course, the students all said yes. The teacher then would illustrate how impotent God really was. The teacher instructed the students, pray fervently for candy. After 10 minutes, the teacher said, did anyone receive candy here? And they responded, no. Then the teacher would ask the students to ask the communist state for candy. With expectant hearts, the students did so. The teacher went around the room filling the students' hands with sweets. Communism wanted them to, to change the perspective of the people to there's no God. The state is your provider and your protector. All you need in this life is the party. And that philosophy is still floating around. In fact, it's more than floating. It's in the media every day in the United States of America in one way or another. It's a lie. A lie that has its roots in the very first lie that was ever spoken on planet Earth. When the serpent said God didn't really mean what he said. Eve, if you eat the forbidden fruit, you will not die. You will be like God. As the perfect world was broken by the curse of sin. The bulk of the Western world today is living under the perspective of a lie regarding gender identity. They're living under a lie regarding marriage as God intended for it. For that matter, the bulk of the Western world lives as if there is no God to answer to other than one's own self. You've heard, to thine own self be true. If self is your God, you're in deep, deep, deep trouble. So we're going to read the same verses that we read last Sunday morning at the set of the message, beginning in Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, or the King James says, help meet, fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The next verse, verse 23 contains the first recorded words of mankind. The first recorded words. These are not the first words that he spoke, but these are the first recorded words. Let me slow this down just a little bit and for you to ponder this. We talked about this scene from a theological point of view last week at some extent. But think about it from Adam, Ish, his point, what he's seeing with his visible eye and experiencing in his feelings. Adam, the first human created from the dust of the earth by God's hand, and then became a living soul when God breathed into his nostrils. And God saw that it was not good. Adam, if you want to know what that's about, you have to listen to the recording from last week. You can find it on, the, on our web. There would be, with Adam as he was, man as he was, the first human, there would be no procreation, no enlarging the family, no human companionship. So God put him into a deep sleep, the first anesthesiast. And God performed the first surgery. He took apart the side of Adam, took out a rib, did a skin graft, stitched him back up, and he formed a woman. He formed a helper. He formed a helpmate. And Azer is the woman, and Azer is the word that we talked about last week. Here's how I see the picture God had created from Adam the first woman the prototype of all the women to follow. Wonder Woman in the original. I believe what he created was perfect in every way. I believe she was stunning. A perfect body, a perfect soul. She was sinless. Notice the first few words of verse 22. Or the last few words, excuse me. God brought her to the man. God brought her to the man. Control yourself, Trevor. God brought her to the man. I've walked down this aisle three times. Yeah. No, four times. Man. Four times I walked down the aisle with a daughter on my arm to hand her off to some knucklehead. Oh, did I say that? 
Adam's coming out of surgery, recovering, and here comes God the Father with Adam's partner on his arm. Now we're ready for verse 23. Then the man said, Wow! Ooh la la la! That is, at, this is at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. What Ish, the male, saw was a mirror of himself with some very agreeable differences. And the men said, they didn't catch what I said, did you? He saw a mirror of himself with some very agreeable differences. John Calvin put it this way. He puts words in Adam's mouth and his imaginations. He said, now at length I've obtained a suitable companion who is part of the substance of my flesh and whom I behold as it were another self, my own flesh and bone. He was no longer alone. A helper or a helpmeet had been made fit for him, and he was delighted. Using his God-given naming abilities, he looked at her, and he included his name in her name. Ish and Isha. We know it as man and woman. Now Moses speaks after Adam has spoke, and he said, verse 20, 24, Therefore, therefore, if you read the NIV, it says, For this reason, and I put in another parenthetical, what reason? Male and female were created for each other. Therefore, a man is shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, Esau, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mentioned last week that we hear a lot in our culture about your soulmate. How many have your soulmate? If your soulmate's sitting next to you and you didn't raise your hand, you're in deep, deep trouble. <laughs> I didn't mean to set you up, but I did, didn't I? There's this inner drive in us that we are not complete without somebody. And we believe that God, in His graciousness, has shaped somebody physically, emotionally, and spiritually to be a match for us. Amen? To be one flesh. To be male and female as God created us in His image. We have this longing for this completeness. It's God's design. It's God's image made complete in us. The image of God cannot be made complete without both halves, male and female. Marriage is so important that he says in this passage of Scripture, a person leaves their parents. A man shall leave his father and mother, and you be united with his wife. Here's the interesting thing about that phrase. 
It didn't happen before Moses wrote this. Jacob had 12 sons, and they all lived together on the same estate, all their families. It didn't happen after Jesus came, or after Moses came. All the way through, um, we'll talk more about that a little later. Um, But here's the thing. The marriage supersedes the parent-child relationship. Marriage supersedes the parent-child relationship. Marriage is the first relationship that God created for humankind. And it was the very first social connection. God's intention for marriage is that a married couple's loyalty and intimacy are first and foremost to each other. When God said, when Jesus said in Matthew, he's saying the husband's first obligations and loyalties are to his wife. Jesus repeated these words, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave. Oh, and cleave. The ESV says to, to be united. The King James says to cleave. To cleave. One theologian I read said that word is used in other places in the Bible, literally meaning glue. One of the commentators said it this way, and sticks to his wife, and sticks to his wife. A man shall leave his father and mother and stick to his wife. Gentlemen, do not leave here today and say to your wife, well, it looks like I'm stuck with you. (laughs) You're supposed to say, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health. It's the same word that Moses used when he'd be talking to the Israelites and they're getting ready to go into the promised land with Joshua. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read these words. In Deuteronomy 10, 20, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. It's the same word that cleave. Cleave to him, hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. In chapter 11, Deuteronomy, verse 22, For if you will be careful to do all the commands that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, holding fast to him. Deuteronomy 13, 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Same word as when it said a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave, be united with his wife. The words leave and cleave, or be united, indicate marriage is to be a covenant. The words leave and cleave, unite, indicate marriage to be a covenant. You might not find that on your page, but it's on mine, and it's on there, okay? It's marriage is a covenant. There is a reason that in recent years when I've performed wedding ceremonies, I've used covenant words. I, Bob, take you, Vicky, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part. Now I have couples say to me, we want to say our own vows. And I let them. And they're wonderfully romantic They're all about their feelings. 
But I've come to the place that I don't let them stop there. I said, okay, I appreciate the fact that you've shared your feelings. They're going to be different tomorrow. I've had couples call me on their, wedding, on their honeymoon. They were in trouble already because they were all about their feelings. I tell them, and listen, what you're entering into goes way beyond your romantic feelings. It is a covenant you're making before God, God the covenant maker. And so you can say your romantic vows, but I want you to say the business vows. I commit myself for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and in health, until death do us part. And then you have to sign that form that's signed by two witnesses and myself and sent to the state that said, you said this and you made this covenant and the only way it can be broken, two ways, divorce or death. And God hates divorce. God does not hate divorcees. It's a good thing he doesn't because some of us would be in deep trouble. But God, all the, well, that's another message. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A biblical marriage, husband and wife have complementarity. I got that from somebody who's a lot smarter than me, that word. I didn't look it up in the dictionary, but uh, a man who holds a couple doctorates uh, wrote that word. In biblical marriage, husband and wife have complementarity. Complementarity. What in the world is that? Well, um, tomorrow we're going to do that roofing project and we'll need some extension cords. And so um, if I buy some, if I buy some cord, I thought I had some, but I couldn't find it. But I do have all these parts that I can make. Um, I can make brand new cords with. All I need is some cord, wire. I can make it work with two wires. These ones are supposed to work with three wires because there's a ground and you're not trying, trying to get sh shocked. But if you unscrew that and put that in there and hook up the wires and put the other end, Complementarity. So what happens if I put, can you see these? They have three prongs on each one of them. Will this do me any good? No complementarity they don't fit and because they're both male I plug one into the wall there might be electricity coming out of here but it's, I can't plug it into another 
I got problem. However, complementarity, they look a whole lot alike with just one significant difference. But they'll go together, which means this will plug into the wall and my saw will plug into here and we'll have power and things will work. Um, complementarity. When God created male and female, a whole lot alike, but just enough difference to make it work. Ish and Isha. Female was created from the male. And if you read Paul's letter, the female was created for the male. That's another message. Number four, because husband and wife have complementarity, because they do, there's the possibility of bearing the image of God. I said it last week, I'll say it again, the only way for us, God created man, male and female, he created human. He said, let us create God in, or man in our own image. Let us create humans in our own image. And he made the first person, then divided that person, and now he got male and female. And the only way for the image of God to be totally expressed is when we come together and become one flesh. Backing up briefly to Genesis 2.20, but for Adam, no suitable helper, Azar, was found. Still talking about that, that, that word, complementarity. Um, we talked about last week that there's those who read that and said, well, God looked at man and said he'd be helpless without a woman to cook for him and wash his clothes and take care of his children. So he created woman. Some read it that this woman is subordinate to the man. And, and um, I told you Jews would pray, I thank God I was not born a Gentile or not born a woman. But Azar, the word helper or helpmeet, is not a word denoting inferiority or subordination. We talked about from in Psalms 121, the same word is used. I lift up my eyes. Where does my Azar, my help come from? My Azar comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, he's not somebody's apprentice who just hands you the tools when you ask for them. He's the maker of the heaven and the earth. And it's called, he's my helper. 1 Samuel 7, 12. Samuel took up a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, stone of help. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Azer, that word, helper, it means it supplies what is lacking. It means it is the counterpart. It means it's the other end of the cord that's one end's female, one end's male, and so you can plug another male cord into it. Azer supplies what's lacking. So let's summarize what we've talked about so far, these past two works with just three statements and a question. It was God who created male and female. 
It was God who created male and female. Number two, it was God who instituted the marriage relationship between male and female. God instituted the marriage relationship between male and female. I'll wait for you to write those words. And then the next one, God blessed the marriage with the gift of procreation and children. God blessed the marriage with gift of procreation and children. You know, the Bible says that children are a blessing from God. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full. I lost a whole lot of amens there. Why did God do this? Why did God create male and female and marriage relationship and the procreation? It was to declare His image. To declare His image. Let us make man in our own image. God created man, male and female, He made them. To bring glory and honor to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now let me ask you this. If you are Lucifer, Satan, the angel cast out of heaven because you rose up in pride and said, I want to be God. If you are Satan, knowing that you have been sentenced to eternity in the burning uh, fire of hell, how would you strike back at God? Every way possible. Because God has chosen the relationship of husband and wife to declare the image of God, Satan is doing everything he can to destroy that image. It is from the pit of hell that we have been introduced to words and acts such as molestation, fornication, adultery, divorce, rape, abortion, homosexuality, pornography, pedophilia, and more. Satan has been attacking this nation, not only this nation, around the globe. But especially in this one, in the progression, in reverse of God's plan for mankind. Satan's progression. Abortion. Abortion. He propagated the lie that a woman's right to choose. That went way back. Now there's been over 60 million, 66 million babies murdered in their mother's womb. Then marriage was attacked. Marriage was attacked. Now when I was a little kid, there was no such thing as no-fault divorce. You had to prove some justification. But somewhere along the line, in my teenage years, somebody came up with that. Let's just have a no fault. You know, I don't love you anymore. We're not getting along anymore. Let's just... And so... And, and now we have a... a generation of people, two generations of people. They don't want to get divorced, and so we'll just live together. And then things really get messy when they buy property together. 
and they're not married, and they didn't think that through very far. But um, what I'm pointing out is Satan has attacked the institution of marriage. Started with abortion, then marriage. And now you know what his last one is, it's very obvious, is the gender confusion. The gender confusion. The lie of hell is that homosexuality is an alternate lifestyle, that you're born that way. Somehow God gave you a homosexual gene and you can't help it. That means the individual who's been diagnosed as a kleptomaniac, they must have a gene for stealing and so they can't help it. So why do we put them in jail if they can't help it? You follow my backyard logic? And while I can find a whole lot of material in the Word to continue down this line of thought, I want to come back to what the biblical marriage is supposed to look like. And why redefining marriage is not an option, no matter what people may say or think, no matter what court they may be sitting on. There's a higher court that one day every court in this world will answer to. Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul gives us some instruction Verse 21, submitting to one another, and we're jumping right into the middle of a sentence, but submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, how does that go across with the feminist world today? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Let's go to the end of the book, the end of the story. Revelation chapter 19, verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. We finally come to the explanation of the title of the message this morning. Lowercase m stands for marriage on earth between a man and a woman. A union of man and woman in holy matrimony. The uppercase M, the capital M, stands for the marriage of Christ and His church. The great marriage supper of the Lamb that will take place when we all get to heaven. When it's all said and done, there's a great wedding supper when Christ is united with the bride and we are the bride of Christ. Note this. The uppercase M came before the lowercase M. God's plan for the marriage of Christ in the church predated the creation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. The plan for Jesus, church marriage, came before there was an earthly husband and wife marriage. You say, how do you know that? In Revelations you read, and we saw the Lamb of God who've been slain before the foundation of the world. God already had the plan of salvation in place. He had the plan that one day that there would be a group of people who would join Him forever in His presence. The Bible begins with marriage, it ends with marriage. And the whole reason it begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve is because God wants people to understand that the culmination of history will be the marriage of Jesus with those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many times when we read Ephesians chapter 5, we think that God borrowed the metaphor of earthly marriage to try to explain what it's going to be like when Jesus comes and the end of time has come. But the fact is, our human marriages are supposed to reflect that big marriage, the marriage of Christ with the church. God said, I'm going to create millions of little M's, little marriages, for this purpose of getting a look forward and begin to anticipate the intimacy and the union that's going to take place when we finally see Jesus Eyeball to eyeball. We stand in the presence of God. What a day that will be. Paul said this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church. I want to share with you what the marriage ceremony looked like in many places when Jesus was walking the, the earth in the Jewish families, the Hebrew families. This is according to a man who has a Ph.D. in, in biblical history and, and world history, in fact. Um, he said the marriage in that first century A.D. was in five stages. First, there was the betrothal. The betrothal. We use the word engagement. 
But in that day, betrothal was far more than an engagement in, like it is in this nation. Betrothal was a binding legal agreement. The only way out of the betrothal, if you got engaged in the first century A.D. And the, as a Jewish young man or woman, the only way to break that is you had to go to court and get a divorce decree. You remember the story of Mary and Joseph? The angel comes and says, Mary, you're going to have a child. Joseph finds out she's pregnant. And what was the first thing he was going to do? He was going to put her away privately. What that means, he was going to divorce her in a quiet way and leave her with her dad. In many Hebrew homes at that particular time, the betrothal was the result of a young man a single man creating a ketubah, a ketubah, a marriage contract. He would go to the home of the young woman that he wished to marry before her and her father. He would make an offer of what he felt like the parents should be compensated for the loss of their daughter. When the young man made the offer, it was not a matter of driving the best bargain like buying a new car or a new donkey. His offer was intended to reflect to that girl's father just how precious and valuable she was. The young man was trying to portray to this father that his daughter was going to be treasured, well taken care of. It was also a way of complimenting the parents for doing such a great job of bringing up such a beautiful and caring soul. They should be properly compensated. So they're sitting across the table or sitting across the room and he makes an offer. Number two was the acceptance. When the suitor finished making his proposal, he would pour a glass of wine and slide it across the table towards the young woman. If she took the cup and drank from it, that meant, yes, I'm in favor of this proposal. If she gave it back, that meant she had rejected his proposal for whatever reason. If she drank the cup, he would begin to rejoice, lavish her with gifts, and he would leave beginning what would generally be a one-year engagement, betrothal, and she would begin the process of waiting for his return. So how about us and Jesus? He slid a cup. Across the table. To tell you how much he values you. And how much he loves you. How much did Jesus love you? He stretched out his arms. He said, nail me to the cross. I'll go into the pit. I'll go into death for you did you take the cup and sip it and say yes Jesus I believe you love me you died for my sins and I'm going to love you in return he sealed the deal with the Holy Spirit whom he sent to live with us during the transition time between now and the final wedding 
If you've accepted Jesus Christ, welcome to the waiting room. The third part was the wedding chamber, or the chupah. The wedding chamber, or the chupah. Now, uh, we, sh- we read that a man should leave his father and mother. And what that meant is they left their authority, the father and mother. They still honored them, but they didn't, now they're establishing their own home. But what the Jews did, the custom of the day, the, the groom would return to his father's house, and he and his father would come up with a plan for an added room or suite to the family home. And during the course of the building, the addition, the dad would check up often on the son, making sure everything was right. Don't be skimping. Don't be cutting corners. It's all about quality. This is going to be the home of his son and his daughter-in-law, more important, the grandkids. So do it right the first time. Other young men would walk by and see the building project and ask, so when is the wedding? And because the, the project would have to have the father's stamp of approval, the groom would answer, only my father knows. It's interesting. Matthew 24. Jesus, what's the sign of you coming back again? Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Only the Father. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, He spoke to the disciples in betrothal language, engagement language. John 14:1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I'm going there, a Shabbat, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. When the job was near completion, a rabbi would be called to inspect. The inspection was that this new expectation, that this new place would be nicer than the place she was living in before. I have a feeling the place he's preparing for me is nicer than the house I live in today. There won't be any bugs eating the wood. There won't be any moss growing on the roof. Hopefully there won't be any grass to mow. (laughs) A new heaven and a new earth not touched by the sin of mankind. After the rabbi inspected and approved them, the father of the groom would certify the shupah was complete. In the meantime... The bride is getting herself ready. While she had a rough idea when it would come, she did not know the exact time. And in the scriptures, it talks about it could be midnight. Remember, Paul warned us that the groom will be coming back like a thief in the night. In other words, he's not going to tell you, I'm coming at Friday at 3 o'clock. He said, be ready. 
Be ready. I'm coming. Be ready. The bride, she would make herself beautiful. She kept herself pure. She would wear a veil that lets people know that she's been spoken for. And she's been bought with a price. And then comes the wedding. Number four. When the wedding chamber was ready, the groom would gather his groommen, and they would begin the parade through the streets of the roads on the way to the home of the bride. And when they got within hearing distance, hearing distance of their destination, they would blow the sound of the shofar to announce their arrival in a matter of minutes. When the bride and her party heard the shofar, they would make sure their lamps were lit and ready for the nighttime trip to her new home. You remember Jesus told the story about the ten virgins. Five of them, the lamps were ready. Five were not. Our groom is coming. Our groom is coming. And it could be any day. Now, I know some people want to read through the, all the prophecies and figure out when it's going to be. Remember what Jesus said. No man knows the hour, not even the angels, only the Father knows. Are you ready? Are you ready? First Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. One of these days, God's going to say, Gabriel, blow that trumpet and blow it now. The groom arrived at the bride's home and she and her attendants joined the groom in the parade back to the Shabbat. The bride and groom would enter the Shabbat and close the door. They would spend the next seven days in that new room. The best man would stand outside the door awaiting the message from the groom. Yes, this marriage has been consummated. And when that happened, the marriage celebration began and it would last for seven days. Remember what John the Baptist referred to himself as the best man in regards to Jesus? He said, I'm not the Christ. No, no, I'm the one waiting at the door to make the announcement. Number five, the wedding supper. When the couple emerges seven days later after the wedding, the wedding supper can finally take place. It appears to me, reading Revelation, that the wedding supper is a big deal to God. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding supper. And in the story that he told, he was upset that the people who had been invited had not shown. Remember that story? And, and of the guests that did show, one of them was not dressed for the wedding. And what happened to him? He got kicked out. The wedding supper's a big deal. Are you ready for the wedding? Are you ready to stand before God? The only proper attire is a garment that's been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ because you have said, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I believe you're my Savior. And God raised you from the dead. And I have committed myself to live for you. Heaven is all about marriage. Heaven is marriage. It's the marriage of Jesus and the church. Those of us who are living marriage as God intended for us living have gotten a taste of the glory and the pleasure 
that we will experience for all of eternity with the groom, Jesus Christ, in a place where Satan can no longer have the ability to pollute or disfigure the image of God. Our goal here, our marriages, to reflect the marriage. The marriage, the uppercase marriage. The reason we stand for marriage, the marriage of one man to one woman, is because it is a reflection of the image of God and a reflection of what is to come. Action steps. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's the last verse of Ephesians 5. Husbands, see to it that you love your wives. And wives, respect your husbands. The way that God created us, the female side of the image of God wants that security of being loved unconditionally. The male side of that image of God, we want to be respected as a man. Christians, all of us, no matter where you're at in your journey, do all we can to preserve the image of God in the United States of America by standing strong for marriage God's way and not man's way. We're going to close by singing...